Well, I hope that you know that, that God loves you. It doesn't matter whether you've been here for the first time or whether you're a charter member of this church, that his love is deep and, um, and there's no lack of it. And we're a congregation that believes that. And, and, and um, God loves us not because we're good. God loves us because he's good. And uh, so, and that's why we have been spending uh, the last uh, month of Sundays uh, on prayer, uh, Jesus on prayer. We've been looking at passages of Scripture specifically that Jesus taught uh, concerning prayer. And so, um, here's some highlights that we've learned in the past few weeks. Uh, One highlight is from Pastor H.B. Charles who said, there is much to do to fix your situation after you pray, but there is nothing you can do to fix it until you pray. So we've talked about the priority of prayer. And prayer, this takes me to another highlight I want to share, prayer not as uh, just getting God's goodies, but getting God and seeing God not as God our creator or God our redeemer or God our shepherd, all those those are biblical and wonderful images. Primarily, primarily, God wants us to approach Him. He is our Heavenly Father who is sovereign and He is good and He gives only good gifts. And so we can, shame, we can shamelessly ask for the good gifts that God wants to give us. And, um, and that means the best that we can do in prayer is not just to get God's goodies, but to get Him. And that's why I like what Tim Keller wrote. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. So uh, if you knew everything God knew, knows, your prayer requests would change because you would have perspective and seeing life through his point of view. Um, and, and that leads us to this third perspective uh, or highlight, which is this, that the point of our series is not just so that you can have a 20 or 30 minute quiet time or prayer time with him and then go off and do whatever you want the rest of the 23 and a half hours. Um, It's wonderful to have uh, that dedicated time with the Lord. It is. And our purpose in this series is not just that you would have an improved prayer life, but that you would have a flourishing praying life. Because God wants to go with you when you're in the office and when you're in the clinic or when you're in the classroom. God wants to go. God, take God with you. And so we've talked about some very specific ways that we can pray that will uh, go beyond just a few moments in the morning. But all day long, we are having a relationship and a, uh, our life is saturated uh, in prayer. As Dallas Willard said, a praying life is a life that is saturated with prayerfulness. You seek to do all that you do with the Lord. Okay, so those that's where we've been. There's much to do to fix your situation after you pray, but there's nothing you can do to fix it until you pray. And God is our Heavenly Father, and He's good, and He'll either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything He knew. And and we want not just a prayer life, but a praying life, one that is saturated with prayerfulness, where all that we do and say is before the Lord and with the Lord and empowered by the Lord. Okay?
All right. Now, with that, uh, I want us to talk about our posture in prayer, our attitude in prayer. I want us to talk this morning about uh, the difference between a humble heart versus a proud heart. And we're going to look at a parable in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to tell you about something that happened in 1995 concerning a guy named MacArthur Wheeler. Interesting story. In 1995, MacArthur Wheeler robbed two banks in broad daylight in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He made no attempt at all to disguise his face. No mask, no visible attempt at all to cover his, his, uh, his face. The police arrested him less than an hour after the video of those robberies went on the evening news. And uh, when the police showed him the video, he was just in disbelief. He was incredulous. He, he said, yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I wore the juice. I wore the juice. They said, you wore the juice? Yeah, the lemon juice. I wore the lemon juice. Apparently, Mr. Wheeler thought that because lemon juice is at times used as invisible ink, he thought that slathering his face with lemon juice, I'm not making this up, would render his face invisible to the security cameras. Well, he was wrong. And why would he think that? Well, that question led to um, psychology professors, two research psychology professors, uh, Justin Kruger and David Dunning from Cornell University. Uh, that question led them to do a series of psychological experiments, and they published their findings in a paper that I think is uh, interestingly titled, uh, here it is, here it is. <laughs> Unskilled and unaware of it. <laughs> How difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to inflated self-assessment. <laughs> it's a good read. It is. And, and the, the point is uh, when, peop when people are incompetent or unskilled in a particular area, they suffer in three ways. First of all, they suffer because, well, they're incompetent. <laughs> all right? But they suffer, secondly, because Often, they're unaware that they're incompetent. And then thirdly, uh, they're incompetent and they're unaware of it. And that leads them to overestimate their abilities, which leads to failure. Right? That's why Mr. Wheeler got arrested. And uh, that leads to a term that... Uh, uh, psychological researchers have called illusory superiority. Illusory superiority. People who overestimate their abilities and qualities relative to others. And so uh, uh, Kruger and Dunning did in their experiment, in their tests, just over simple tests of, of language, uh, uh, reasoning. Uh, one of the tests just had to do with, it was just, very lighthearted, had to do with the issue of well, how funny do you think I am, that kind of a thing. And so here's what they found out in this chart. So there's the black line and the red line. So the red line is how they actually scored on their tests, all right? And what they found was, and then, but the black line is they asked them how they thought they would do on the test before they took the test. 
And so that was their perceived ability. So, so get this, those who scored in the bottom 25% uh, overestimated how well they would do. Uh, on the other hand, those who scored in the upper 25% underestimated how well they would do. Does that make sense? So, so based on this, Kruger and Dunning came up with this really uh, interesting chart. It's the next slide. So, so confidence on one axis and, and, and knowledge and experience on the other. And so often what they found was that people who have no knowledge or experience often feel that they are you know, more informed than they actually are. And so this leads to that peak. <laughs> that, that peak is, and I, those are not my words. Those are the researcher's words. That, that peak is called M Mount Stupid, all right? And then, and then what happens, of course, when reality sets in, uh, that's what's called the trough of despair, all right? And, uh, then, and then, after a little while, then there's, there's the slope of enlightenment, all right, where over time and study and knowledge and experience, then the individual actually then becomes an expert in whatever that is. But yet, notice that their confidence level, it, well, it, they're just more humble. See, they're just more humble. And, uh, th and their attitude changes. So even when they become the expert, their attitude is, you know, there's always more to learn. It, you know, this really is complicated, and it really is difficult, and there's more to learn, all right? So, illusory, superiority. This is not just something that's true in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or at Cornell University. This is like, a, this is like the human condition. Uh, in 2014, a team of British researchers surveyed 85 convicts at a prison in England. And these inmates were age 18 to 34, and the majority of them had been jailed for acts of violence and robbery. And these inmates completed questionnaires anonymously and in relative privacy. Here's what the study concluded. Um, here it is. Compared with the average prisoner, compared with the average prisoner, the conflict, the convicts, all of them, Compared with the average prisoner, the convicts rated themselves as more moral, kinder to others, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, and more honest compared to the average criminal, all right? Remarkably, they also rated themselves as higher on all of these traits than the average member of the community who was not in prison, with one exception, law-abiding, where they rated themselves as equivalent on this trait relative to the average community member. Illusory superiority. People who overestimate their abilities and qualities when they compare themselves to others. All right? Illusory superiority. Well, I'm telling you, it's not just in Pittsburgh, it's not just at Cornell, it's not just in England, it's in the Bible. And we're going to read a classic case study that Jesus gives us. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18. 
verses 9 through 14. You'll find that on page 877 of your church Bibles. And it's, it's, it's frightening how illusory superiority can uh, show up even in something as innocent as prayer. But this is exactly where we see it when Jesus tells this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Now, why did Jesus tell this parable? What's this here for? Well, verse 9 tells us why. Verse 9 tells us, To those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So you, one leads to the other. And, and Jesus told the parable to them. Do you notice that? He didn't. It's a good lesson for us. He didn't tell the parable about them. He told the parable to them. And, and, and he used this parable to, to sneak up from behind. Capture them with the penetrating truth of the Word of God. He tells about something that happened every day in their life. Every day. Every day, twice a day, as a matter of fact. Every day, twice a day, hundreds streamed into the temple for worship. Every day, twice a day. Every day, twice a day. Uh, there was prayer every day, twice a day. 9 a.m., 3 p.m. Every day, twice a day. Every day, twice a day, faithful, God-fearing Gentiles and Hebrews would stream onto the temple compound. The temple compound was a, was a place, of, the perimeter was about three-quarters of a mile, and we're talking about 17 acres, about twice the size of, of our church campus. And, and the temple was a series of concentric squares, and Areas were limited depending on who you were. So there was the court of the Gentiles. And, and then there was the court of the Hebrew women. And then there was the court of the Hebrew men. And eventually it would just come down to the high priest. There in the Holy of Holies. And that just once a year. That high priest could enter. 
But after entering the compound, these Hebrew men would ascend 14 steps leading up to the court of Israel where the daily sacrifice took place. The priest would take an unblemished lamb and pin its front legs and its back legs and at the appointed time would sacrifice that lamb, kill it, and section its body there on uh, the altar consumed in a fire. And it was a sin offering. It was a substitute. And theologically, for one day and one day only, God would postpone judgment. And then the priest would take the liquid incense and pour it on the fire and the water would evaporate and the smoke would rise and the mist would rise to heaven, symbolizing the prayers of God's people. And it was there in the court of Israel with hundreds and hundreds of of, uh, Hebrew men where these two were. One of them was a Pharisee. Now, listen, we have been conditioned to see the Pharisees as, you know, bad guys. and But you know what? I guarantee you that if you had a choice uh, between your daughter or your granddaughter marrying a Pharisee or a tax collector, you'd go with the Pharisee every time. You would. And why? Well, because the Pharisee, this guy was good. He was a good man. He was moral. He was decent. He was law-abiding. Didn't cheat on his family. Jesus did not say anything untrue about this guy. And furthermore, he was a tither. Yeah. He gave 10% of whatever. Not just his paycheck, but his birthday gifts. And he fasted. Yeah. Shames me. And he fasted twice a week, Monday and Thursday. Uh, Because Thursday was the day that Moses went up to Sinai to receive the law. And he was gone 40 days, and he came back on a Monday. And and God's people were really only required to fast like once a year. But this guy, no way. Twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, man. This guy was reputable. He was affluent. He was a community pillar. Scripture says he stood by himself. The Pharisee standing by himself. Literally, literally, verse 11. And standing, he prayed about himself. God, I thank you. Now that's a good start. All right? I mean, a good way to begin prayer always is with thanksgiving and Gratitude and appreciation. Gratitude is one of the healthiest emotions you can feel, depending on what you're grateful for. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Oops. I thank you that I'm not like the extortionists and the unrighteous or the womanizers or, or like that tax collector over there. Did he really say that? What would that sound like? What would that sound like in a room like this 2,000 years later? What would that sound like? God, I thank you that Windsor Road Christian Church has been privileged to have me as their pastor all these years. 
I thank you, God, that I am not like all those other pastoral saps who split churches and abscond with offerings and cheat on their families. God, I thank you for my devoted service to this church. I thank you that every Sunday they sit spellbound beneath my riveting pulpit rhetoric. I thank you for my humility, Lord. God, I thank you for me. He really said that. He really did. In his prayer, five times he says, I. Count it. Talked about what he'd done. What he had achieved. Then he compared himself horizontally with the tax collector and he assumed that God graded on the curve. And Jesus said that when this Pharisee left the temple, went back home, went back to his work, went back to his family, it was as if he'd never been there at all. He was a good, moral, religious guy who went to worship on his way to hell. And here's the question. Did he even know it? Did he even know it? Does he even know how much danger he's in? Or is he just going to do the same thing the next day? Right? Lather, rinse, repeat. See, his biggest problem is that he thinks that what he's doing works. He thinks that showing up and doing his religious deeds makes him righteous. But, but here's the irony. Where is he? He's in the temple. And what is the temple? The temple is Israel's temple, the meeting place between God and people, the portal between heaven and earth. And there's a lamb that's being sacrificed. He doesn't get that that lamb is there for him. It's being offered for him, but he's not getting it. In fact, in his prayer, he doesn't even ask God for anything, does he? Because he doesn't think he needs anything. It's not for me. It's for someone else, like that tax collector. And you need to know this. In Jesus' day, people looked on tax collectors you know, as traitors because you know, they were in the court of Israel, which means this tax collector was of Hebrew ethnicity. And he was looked down on and ostracized because, you know, they just said, well, you've sold out to a pagan foreign power who's occupying our land. And, and tax collectors were in this league of notoriously corrupt scoundrels. Whereas the Pharisee's posture was briefly described while his prayer is long, the tax collector's posture is described in depth, but he has a very brief prayer. The tax collector says, stands alone, far off. He can't even look to heaven. He, he beats his chest in grief over his life. I mean, this guy has every material thing 
a person could want. And yet he realizes there is a hole in his spirit. And he knows it. And he can't fix it. And all he can say is, all he can say, literally, all he can say is, Lord, let this atonement, let this lamb, let what's going on the altar right now be for me, the sinner. Literally, that's what it says, the sinner. In other words, he prays as if he's the only one there. And Jesus shocks the audience by telling them that the wrong type went home forgiven. Everybody, everybody was expecting Jesus to say that the Pharisee went home forgiven. No, no. And why? Because the Pharisee saw his righteousness and thought he was safe. The tax collector saw his sin and knew he was lost. The Pharisee thought his righteousness would get him in heaven. The tax collector knew that only God could keep him out of hell. The Pharisee trusted in his righteous morals, the tax collector, in God's relentless mercy. Verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is a parable of self-exalting pride versus God-exalting humility. Now, does your prayer life, does your praying life, does your life reflect the one or the other? Which is it? Which is it? You see, pride preaches merit. Humility pleads for mercy. Pride negotiates with God as an equal. Humility approaches God in need. Pride compares itself with others. Humility compares itself with God's blazing glory. Pride tears down through self-centeredness. Humility builds up through other-centeredness. Pride turns up its nose. Humility lifts others' lives. Pride finds it easy to talk. Humility finds it hard to talk. And humility is harder to talk about because humility doesn't talk. Humility just gets out there and serves, often with sacrifice. Humility doesn't claim rights. It just tries to do what's right. Humility doesn't brag about integrity. Humility displays integrity. And sometimes it's easy to miss what does not point to itself, but God sees the humble heart, and He smiles. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever, whoever is full of himself, whoever is spiritually self-promoting, whoever is self-absorbed, God will bring down. He will. But the humble, the modest, the selfless, the unpretentious, God will lift up. He will. And why? Here's why. Because God qualifies God justifies those who cry for mercy, not those who crow about their merits. So now what does this humble heart look like in real life? Well, let's just talk about a prayer practice 
we've tried to think about how we can actually order our lives so that our prayers reflect a heart that's humble to God, our Heavenly Father, who gives only good gifts. So, so we've talked about practices. Uh, we talked about praying Scripture. So when you pray, open your Bible and pray through a passage of Scripture, be it a verse, a paragraph, a chapter, a parable. So pray through this passage of Scripture. We've talked about after you do that, then to, to actually pray the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to do in a moment. Be it reciting the Lord's Prayer from memory or just going through each phrase and personalizing it. And then, and then just praying what's on your heart. Okay, praying Scripture, praying the Lord's Prayer, and praying whatever is on your heart. All right? And then let that be the conversation that we have with the Lord, not just for 20 minutes a day, but all throughout the day. All throughout the day. I am praying Scripture. And, and when I'm praying Scripture here, and when I'm praying this particular parable, you know, I, 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 the point of the parable is not to walk away and say, well, whew, thank God I'm not that Pharisee. No, the minute you say that, you are. <laughs> no. Listen, you can never go wrong with this prayer. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. God, your mercies are new every morning. Have mercy on me, the sinner. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. You never go wrong with that prayer. Not when it's prayed from the heart. And then you'll see how a praying life affects the way you think and the way you think about others, leading to how you act. A praying life affects the way you think about others. I'm, I'm thinking about a news story that I read not long ago about a former member of Congress, 2011, a member of Congress had to resign because of a sexting scandal. And this particular person um, did it again in 2013 while running for mayor of New York City. And then a few weeks ago, this person was in the news once more for repeating this same moral failure. And his wife finally had enough and had separated from him. And she probably should. So how would the Pharisee and the tax collector each respond to this news story? Huh? Well, we know. We know what the Pharisee would do, right? The Pharisee would belittle that person. The Pharisee would say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that person. Oh, man. I'm better than that. He may have made a joke about it at the barbershop or issued some moral judgment about it in Sunday school class, right? We know that's how the Pharisee would. And, and you know what? We also know what the tax collector would think as well, right? The tax collector would read that story and then ask and pray, God, Am I that different? Aren't there times when my destructive habits have hurt others? Aren't there times when I've let my rage alienate me from my family, my children, my staff? Aren't there times when my compulsive eating has jeopardized my health and my future? Aren't there times when I've bought a bottle of vodka telling myself that I can stop whenever I want, but I just don't want to right now? Haven't there been times 
when I have let an urge grow into a snarling beast that devoured everything and everyone that stood between it and my pleasure? Oh, God, have mercy on me. See, the Pharisee would say, God, I thank you that I would never do that. The tax collector would say, I'm not that different. God, have mercy on me. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you in this parable? We are a community of Christ followers. We are a people with praying lives. And prayer makes us self-aware. Prayer reminds us of who we are and who we're not. Prayer helps us abandon all hope of independent capability. Prayer decimates any autonomous self-assurance. Prayer calls us to cry out for the help that we're so often tempted to deny that we need. In prayer, we plead with God to make us a community that shares the eye-opening truth of Christ. In prayer, we don't need to compare ourselves. We don't need to be approval junkies because we live before an audience of one. In prayer, we're not a church of good people trying to improve We're a church of rescued sinners, grateful to the resurrected one who has raised our dead body back to life that is truly life in prayer. We celebrate not our morality, but his. Not our righteousness, but his. Not our goodness, but his. And any good that we do is Christ in and through us, the hope of glory. That's our heart, and that's our attitude. Amen. And that attitude then leads to acting. I'm thinking of Wells Crowther. Wells Crowther. As a child, uh, Wells Crowther's father had given him a red bandana to use in church if he ever needed to blow his nose. He he wanted his young son to keep the white handkerchief intact in the pocket. And uh, he would tell his son, he said, you know, Wells, the white handkerchief is for show. The red bandana is for blow. Okay? (laughs) That's how he put it. And, and, And Wells carried that bandana with him always. Uh, Wells had been a volunteer firefighter as a young man, but um, on September 11, 2001, he was working on the 104th floor of the South Tower as an equity trader. And when the tower was hit, uh, Wells tied that red bandana that he still kept with him across his face, and he used the training that he'd received as a volunteer firefighter. And he would take one group of people down to safety, 17 floors. Um, And then he would turn around and go back up 17 floors. And he saved as many as a dozen people before the structure collapsed and killed him. And months later, uh, when his remains were discovered, Wells' body 
was in the lobby of the tower among uniformed firefighters. And that red bandana was nearby. He was 75 feet away from the rest of his life. But he did not make the walk. Instead, he turned around and he stayed to help. He saved others by choosing not to save himself. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Therefore, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. And taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness and having found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that's the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.